Greetings, this is Cody. You're listening to the Cantus Firms podcast. I'm doing something a little uh, different today. I'm going to be responding to clips from a recent episode of the podcast Heretic Happy Hour, a show co-hosted by my friend Keith Giles. He's been on uh, Cantus Firms a couple times before, once where we were in pretty strong agreement, and another time when we weren't so in sync. <laughs> this time around, I'll be uh, disagreeing with him and his co-hosts on issues surrounding the canon of Scripture, which is to say the list of the books of the Bible. Now, if, if he or anyone on Heretic Happy Hour would like to dialogue further, I'd be more than happy to do so. For those who are interested in hearing the full context of the uh, episode they'll be playing clips from, uh, they can search Heretic Happy Hour on whatever their podcast aggregating software is, and um, it's episode 9, the biblical canon, where the heretic of the week was John Fugelsang. Primarily, I'm going to be looking at their problems with having a canon in general, <laughs> and also where they think the canon came from, and issues surrounding whether Paul wrote all of the letters ascribed to him in the Bible. Uh, they do talk about the documentary hypothesis a little bit. That's the popular view in critical scholarship about how parts of the Old Testament came together over time. But since that's somewhat off topic, and I've already discussed it on the podcast and website, I'll leave that aside. You can always search documentary hypothesis on cantusfirmus.com if you'd like some of my thoughts on that topic. So let's get into it. Before we even get into the Christian canon, I, I wanted to problematize, I want to start this conversation by problematizing things even further and mention the Jewish canon. Because when you start to research how Jews viewed the so-called canon of scripture, you realize different Jews had different views. Did you like that? that? That just came out of nowhere. I didn't, I did MC not plan Matt. that. I <laughs> oh, I got one of, the, I got the trombone. No, but anyway, yeah. I mean, you know, we often hear, well, the Jews believe this, the Jews believe that. And that's just such a um, myopic view. Like that's just not how things go. So when I was doing some research for this, I, I looked into it and you, you get into things like rabbinic Judaism, had the 24 books of the Masoretic text, um, the Tanakh. And then they had what's called this tal this thing called the Talmud, which was oral midrash. And we mentioned midrash uh, on the last episode where these rabbis would get together. They would discuss the Torah and such, and they would write down their commentaries. They would kick these ideas back and forth. And then that, so that for the rabbinic tradition is holy scriptures. But you get into, let's say the Samaritans, they had Torah full stop. That's it. Um, like end of story. You didn't have all this. And, and you get into charism and they had only the Tanakh. So the 24 books. Um, so that just problematizes things even further where we, when we just have this view, like this is canon end of story. It's like, well, maybe things aren't so easy. So his comments about the different canons are, I mean, basically true as far as they go. I would nitpick the idea that rabbinic tradition is an extension of the biblical canon, though I can see where he's going with that. Um, the issue with the Samaritans, um, you know, they were a group that were separated from the Jews by regional boundaries and racial mistrust uh, starting uh, around the Persian period. And yeah, they only had the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, also called the Torah. Uh, and, and interesting fact, uh, their version of the Pentateuch included some modifications uh, which made Samaria appear more central than Judah, which is kind of interesting. Um, however, the fact that they did privilege the Torah, 
or the Pentateuch. Strong suggests that by that time, around the Persian period, the Jews already had a core canon of the first five books of the Bible. Um, the other Old Testament books would later need to fight for canonical recognition among the Jews, and they never quite got there with the Samaritans. Um, but, but that is interesting in mission already because we are acknowledging sort of a core canon that gets developed um, a little bit later, but certainly by the time of Jesus. Now, ultimately, the real question is, what canon did Jesus affirm? And more on that after the next clip. And the, the, so the Pharisees had their, their set, and then the, the Sadducees had their set, the Essenes had their set. So there's these different groups running around, and each had a different set of authoritative scriptures, and it was a big debate. And so people would debate, what do we trust? How do we know what's real? How do we know it's true? Everybody's looking for this authoritative thing we can stand on that's external, this external set of documents. And Jesus thought that conversation was so important that he never... <laughs> <laughs> never weighed in on um, They were always trying to get, drag him into that argument and he never weighed in on it. He never actually said, guys, let me just settle this debate once and for all. Here is the approved set of writings. He never did it because, and, and honestly, I'm, it's tongue in cheek when I'm saying that he thought it was so important. I actually don't think he thought it was important because I think Jesus intrinsically knew that true authority, what you know to be true does not come from anything external. It doesn't come from an external set of documents. So uh, really, it's just really interesting um, uh, and again, I know we're having this conversation for a reason. We're having this podcast for a reason because Christianity historically has made this conversation ultimate because, uh, but it's really not. And again, that's where this, this, that's why, that's why we're doing this podcast. So Jesus obviously thought scripture, uh, was important in John 10 35. He claims that scripture is the word of God and can't be broken. And Matthew five seventeen, he says he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, which by the way, is him taking sides on the canon issue since he's affirming the prophets as scripture. So he's disagreeing with Samaritans here and the Sadducees. Uh, he sides with the larger canon of the Pharisees uh, in Matthew 22 as well. Uh, this is where the Sadducees, who only held to the Torah and denied the resurrection, came to him with this uh, you know, brain teaser that they thought would disprove the resurrection, meaning they knew he affirmed it. His response was, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. For Jesus, error is the result of not knowing the scriptures and the power of God. When he says scriptures, he has specific books in mind. And so, yeah, I have been posting on Facebook uh, because, really, because I've been thinking about it for this for this upcoming podcast. And um, and I get it. You know, some people are emotional. They're not they're not scholars, and they they feel threatened because I'm I'm saying that some of the letters of Paul, or maybe the Epistle of Peter. Uh, aren't authentic. And, but, um, but I did actually post some of this on a friend of mine's Facebook page who is a New Testament scholar. And I respect this guy. I mean, I will probably never know the Bible the way this guy knows the Bible. Super smart guy. Uh, and I posted some of this on his Facebook page. And the depressing thing was to get back a response, for example, like, oh, those are liberal scholars who say that. And I'm like, well, okay, well, hey, hang on a minute. Um, so liberal scholars don't, I mean, so non-liberal scholars don't care about esch things like eschatology and language choice and theology and because that's that's all that's happening. Like to me, um, there are no like, facts are not liberal or conservative. They're just facts. And so if scholars, whatever their background is, if scholars look at a text and say, "Here are my reasons for doubting that Paul wrote these," then then let's address those issues, not just say, "Oh, you're liberal and now I'm done." 
On one level, I agree with this. Um, Dr. Robert Price, who was good enough to be on this podcast twice, uh, mine, I mean, is a New Testament scholar who denies a historical Jesus and Paul, and he's often rebutted on the basis of, well, everyone knows Jesus existed and Paul wrote Galatians. And I think we need better arguments than that. You know, That being said, facts are not always just facts. Facts must be placed into a context and interpreted. When a skeptical scholar like Bart Ehrman debates a Christian scholar like Dan Wallace, they come acknowledging the same set of facts about New Testament textual criticism. So why does one conclude that the New Testament can be trusted, and the other conclude that it can't? Well, it's because of the context in which they situate those facts, which facts they evaluate as the most significant, and what conclusions they think are most plausible on the basis of those facts. And that's where bias comes in. A conservative and a critical scholar may be aware of all the same facts. The difference is how they're predisposed to interpret those facts because of their presuppositions. Well, so when I posted this on my friend's page, who is a scholar, um, I got a little bit of that kind of language, like, oh, these are just liberals. Um, and then I said, well, hang on, you know, Martian, I mentioned what you said, Martian didn't include the pastoral epistles, First uh, and Second Timothy and Titus, uh, or Second Peter. And, um, and I think there's got to be a reason why. He goes, well, Martian was a heretic. So let's not listen to him. I said, well, yeah, Martian also believed Jesus was the son of God and the Messiah. So should I dismiss that because it was a Martianite idea? Obviously, obviously not everything Martian believed should be dismissed. So once again, let's go ask the question, why is it that Martian excluded the pastoral epistles and Second Peter? Um, I would suggest it's possibly that A, those weren't written yet because they were written much later. And he didn't even know about them because they didn't exist. Or they were written, and he he was aware of them, but he was also aware of the fact that they were not written by Paul, and that, that Second Peter wasn't written by Peter. And so, um, and by the way, Second Peter is the most disputed book in the New Testament for a reason. I, I posted that, and someone you know, gave me back this liberal scholar stuff, and I'm like, look, non-liberal scholars have to have a little more game than just to simply say, um, well, if you say that you're a liberal scholar, okay, or to say things like, well, it says right there in the book, you know, it's written by Paul, or it says right there, it's written by Peter. So by way of historical context here, Marcion, or Marcion, uh, however you want to pronounce it, was a Gnostic thinker teaching around the 140s AD. Scholars who deny that Paul wrote the letters to Timothy and Titus, the pastorals here that uh, um, Keith is referencing, they usually date them to the late first century. And that's at least in part because Polycarp, uh, who's you know, writing around 110 to 120, he references First and Second Timothy. So the issue isn't one of whether those books were written yet. I mean, even critical scholars would, would agree, you know, with maybe a few extreme exceptions in the margins, uh, that they were definitely already written. The issue could be that the pastorals gained later acceptance uh, than some of the other letters because they were letters written to individuals instead of churches, and therefore they weren't as widely copied. It's also possible that Marcion was aware of them and simply didn't like what was in them. Remember, we're talking about a guy here um, who only accepted the Gospel of Luke because it was the most Gentile. He was still aware of Matthew or Mark. We can't use him not using those as evidence that he didn't know about them. Uh, or that he, you know, he just didn't like what they said. You know? And that could be the case with the pastorals as well. There could have been something in them he just didn't like. In any case, we're dealing with conjecture here, and and the fact that these guys are leaning towards the most disparaging view of the pastorals, and I'm talking about my friend Keith here, um, you know, he is my friend, but we disagree on some things, but, but the fact that he's he's sort of willing to 
uh, you know, take the most you know negative view on these issues, um, the most critical view on these issues, when the evidence is actually pretty inconclusive, I think that demonstrates that bias thing I was talking about earlier. That wasn't an unheard of practice back in the day. If you were a disciple of Paul or, you know, Tertullian or Origen, to write something in their name because you had spent time with them and you knew them. And so if you wrote something, you you were kind of given license to say that it was by Paul or that it was by Peter or whoever your, your you know, your mentor was. Yeah. And <laughs> copyright laws weren't right. what they are now. I mean, come on. <laughs> That's just like, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't be like, oh, I studied Rene Girard. So I'm going to write something as if Girard said it. Obviously, like this is the 21st century. Um, so... I'm going to cite Bart Ehrman here. <laughs> I'm going to cite him uh, because he is a respected scholar, um, because despite uh, his bias, which, you know, I've, I've talked about things where I've disagreed with him on or where I think his bias is shown, uh, I think he is a, a quality scholar. Um, I'm also citing him because I know the, the guys at Heretic Happy Hour respect him, although I know they disagree with him as well because they aren't agnostics. They, uh, they believe in God and, you know, Jesus and all that stuff. Um but uh, what he says here uh, in his book Forged, I, I do think has some validity. So he, he actually refers to, he uses the term forgery to refer to this idea of uh, pseudonymous writing, writing in someone else's name. Uh, you know, he, he, he does say, um, you know, in modern times, this is him, him writing, uh, when we think of forgery, we think of highly illegal activities that can send a person to prison. Ancient forgers were not, as a rule, thrown in jail because there simply weren't laws governing the production and distribution of literature. There were no copyright laws, for example. But <laughs> ancient authors did see this kind of activity as fraudulent. They recognized it as deceitful. They called it lying and other even nastier things, and they often punished those who were caught doing it. So when I use the term forgery, I do mean for it to have negative connotations, in part because, as we will see, the terms used by ancient authors were just as negative, if not more so, end quote. He also addresses this idea of um, uh, naming, um, uh, you know, a school naming a document after their teacher and, and you know, thus suggesting that this, this other guy had written it. He points to the fact that there are actually only two sources that, that possibly allude to uh, this to this idea. Quote, the third century Neoplatonic philosopher Porphyry, who is alleged to have said that in the school of the ancient philosopher Pythagoras, who lived 800 years earlier, it was a common practice for disciples to write books and sign their master's name to them. As it turns out, Porphyry doesn't say anything about followers of Pythagoras writing books and then signing his name to them. Instead, he says that Pythagoras himself wrote 80 books, 200 books were written by his followers, and 12 books were forged in the name of Pythagoras. The 12 books are condemned for using Pythagoras's name when he didn't write them. The forgers, <laughs> the forgers are called shameless people who fabricated false books. The 200 books are not said to have been written by Pythagoras's followers in his name. They were simply books written by Pythagoras's followers. He points to uh, one other um, uh, reference here. And, and according to Ehrman, uh, th there's really only two that are pointed to to, to defend this idea. It's in the writings of Iamblichus. He's another Neoplatonic philosopher from about the same time as Porphyry. Uh, in his account of Pythagoras' life, Iamblichus says the following, This also is a beautiful circumstance that they, i.e. Pythagoras' followers, referred everything to Pythagoras and called it by his name, and that they did not ascribe to themselves the glory of their own inventions, except very rarely. For there are very few whose works are acknowledged to be their own. End quote. Now, 
Ehrman's argument is, we don't actually have any reason to think that Christians would have held this view. And in fact, whenever Christians do reference this idea of, uh, you know, pseudonymous writings or, or writing in the name of someone who didn't actually write it, they're pretty negative on it. Um, Ehrman likewise uh, denies the probability that an apostle would have used a secretary to do a great deal of a letter's composition. You know, he says, yeah, sure, they might have had someone write for them, but they would have dictated the letter. Um, but if there was, in fact, this possibility of, of a secretary doing some of this composition for you, uh, that would obviously affect the letter style and would give it the appearance of another author's hand. So that could actually, um, you know, account for differences uh, in style between, I don't know, like Ephesians and Galatians. Um, Ehrman denies this probability. It seems more probable to me. And um, not only that, but there are there are possible allusions to it. First uh, Peter 5.12 acknowledges the role of Sylvanus in writing it. Um, and, you know, possibly Sylvanus wasn't just the... Um, wasn't just being dictated to. Maybe he actually had had a hand in writing the letter. Uh, Paul also acknowledges co-authors in some of his letters. Uh, for example, 1 Corinthians 1.1, he opens, uh, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. Um, he does that in, I think, about seven letters. So that seems more possible to me, and I think it could actually count for some of these issues we're seeing in style, although there's a lot of other things that could account for that as well. For example, the audience you're writing to when you're writing it, what the, the, the main topics are that you're covering. You know, uh, if I'm telling, you know, I work in IT, if, if I'm writing some, you know, a guide for, uh, you know, how to, how to you know, work through a, a computer problem, I'm going to use very different terminology than I would if I'm, you know, writing a book on um, Irenaeus's uh, view of, of the atonement. This idea of the canon and really when we say canon, this is what I was taught. <clears throat> and you guys, you know, if you have, correct me if, if you have a different view of this, but the idea of canon is, is this it, really the word canon means measuring stick. And so the measuring stick is, okay, here's what the early church council, the, 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 there's a church council in the fourth century that pretty much uh, created the Bible as we know it today. So this, this council was using this measuring stick, this canon, so to speak, as to what to include and what to not include in their official set of books. And one of the things that they would use is this concept called apostolic authority. Did it have either apostleship authorship? Did an apostle write it? Were they the authors? Or did it have um, some kind of apostolic um, validation. So if an apostle didn't write it, was it accepted or perceived to be accepted by an apostle? And did, and also did the, the, the church now, again, this is where it's church according to them. <clears throat> did the church right. accept these writings and were, you know, if they were in dispute, they tended, didn't make the canon if these were disputed books. So that's kind of how they decided what was quote unquote inspired and what, um, and what wasn't, you know, and, I think the problem with that, first of all, for me personally, this it really pisses me off. It, it really rubs me the wrong way that another human being dares to have the arrogance to speak on behalf of other people and, and to tell them what is inspired and what isn't. It's just ridiculous as somebody saying, hey, I know you really like that movie that you watched and it really spoke to you and brought a lot of life to you, but that's not actually inspired. Like, I'm just want to tell you that it's not inspired. And actually it's, it's really bad. As a matter of fact, don't watch the movie because it'll like, like for someone else to tell you, like, as if you don't know, as if your spirit doesn't have a ability to perceive what's true, that you need to be told by an outside group of people, 
what is inspired and what isn't like that is the uh, yeah, Hebrews chapter one says that uh, Jesus is the most superior revelation of God, um, more so than the Old Testament. Even this is a statement that I think the heretic happy hour guys would agree with. Now, wouldn't it be nice to have some reliable documentation of that revelation for posterity? Where might that come from? Uh, this, you know, reliable revelation about who Jesus was. Um, I don't know, maybe his apostles who witnessed his life, death, and resurrection and were charged with spreading the word? Maybe them? <laughs> yeah, apostolic authority is a very sensible criteria for canonical writings about Jesus. Finally, the idea that by saying that you know this book is infallible and this book is not, we're actually claiming that anything outside of scripture is you know garbage, it's... That's such a silly misrepresentation of what Orthodox Christianity is actually saying that I almost can't believe it was raised sincerely. Uh, but you know, I'm given the I'm given the benefit of the doubt. I, I just it's surprising to me that I, I, that he got that conclusion somehow. Um, you know, even some fundamentalists will, will read early church writings outside of the New Testament for edification, uh, and they don't think they're infallible. So why would a group, and by the way, I want to touch on this in a, in a second, why would a group of only men in the fourth century feel the need to call a council to create a book that didn't exist for, for, for like the, the first 300 years of Christian history? Why would they feel the need to even do that? And, and you have to take for in, into consideration the, the cultural and political situation that was going on. It was really a council that was organized and the energy behind it was from a political ruler was Constantine, the, the, the ruler of the Roman empire who was, who adopted Christianity after, you know, first 300 years of trying to snuff it out in the Roman empire, they realized they weren't going to stop it. So they co-opted it. Literally it became the only official Christian religion. Then they wanted to consolidate power as political rulers do, because it took 300 years for certain offices like bishops and these church leaders, this hierarchical system to rise in order to, but not everybody was on the same page. So Christianity was a monolithic group with lots of different kinds of opinions and ideas. Not everybody believed the same thing or had the same ideas specifically about the way of Jesus, which was absolutely contrary to forming any kind of power structures. So the fact that um, Constantine wanted to consolidate power, you would have to marginalize certain groups that weren't going to go along with you. And how do you do that? Well, you 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 come up with a list of approved documents. This is the old argument made uh, popular uh, in more recent years by uh, Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. Uh, and this argument is that the Council of Nicaea, under pressure from Constantine, tried to censor books by excluding them from the canon. The problem is that it never happened. The, the Council of Nicaea made no decisions regarding the canon. It, it was called to address the Arian Schism and to decide what exactly scripture meant in its assertions that Jesus is divine. By this time, Gnosticism was actually dying out anyway. There was little point in addressing it. The canon actually came together organically as churches recognized what was apostolic in origin, rejected what clearly wasn't, for instance, the later Gnostic writings, which had no historical connection to Jesus, and debated over documents which it wasn't clear on, like Second Peter, Revelation, Hebrews. This process probably became more intentional after Marcion put together his canon, but even then, Marcion was making cuts out of books that were already organically understood to be authoritative, widely throughout the church, namely, four Gospels and the letters of Paul. 
There was never some final council that decided the New Testament canon. This happened as the Holy Spirit led his church to apply its criteria of apostolic origin to the documents which became the New Testament. As for Constantine, he didn't care what the council decided. And once again, this council had nothing to do with deciding the canon. But he didn't care what they decided on the issue of the divinity of Jesus as long as there was a uniform opinion. He just didn't want there to be division. When Arianism began to overtake the empire... Constantine was quite happy to acquiesce to that position. He honestly didn't care. Because there were a lot of other documents floating around that people were reading from and people had written that were actually yep. in circulation. And those were those were like dangerous to the power structures. So if we come up with this canon, we can exclude a lot of other stuff. And that's that's that is a huge motivation behind all of this. Oh yeah. I, I absolutely, man, totally agree. And thank you. That was that was great. What documents were dangerous to the power structures that aren't in the New Testament? In the canonical Gospels, Jesus claims that Satan is behind political authorities. And in Paul's canonical letters, we read that Jesus will defeat the powers. Revelation teaches that Rome was supported by the devil. What could possibly be in the non-canonical writings to top that? Maybe I'm just mis misremembering. Maybe I spend you know more time in the canon than in pseudonymous writing, and, and you know I'm just not thinking of any of that. But honestly, nothing comes to mind. I, I, my other problem with the with the whole canonization thing too, uh, this this is what pisses me off about the whole when I think about this whole uh, idea of canonizing scripture. It's not just deciding what's in and what's out; it's deciding that God has finished speaking. It's saying that okay, from this point forward, the Holy Spirit stopped speaking to uh, His people. Uh, he stopped inspiring people to think about who He was or to write down and communicate, uh, you know, what how they were experiencing God in their own in their own life. Uh, I mean, to me, that that is what makes me mad because I don't I don't. First of all, I don't think anyone has the authority to say that. I don't even think that the scriptures support the idea uh, that God was ever going to stop, you know, speaking to his people or that he was ever going to cease uh, inspiring us. So, I mean, I, I would say that you know, he never stopped. Completely bogus. Total misrepresentation. Having a canon means God has spoken to the entirety of the church authoritatively. Does that mean God can't speak to you personally or to your church? Of course not. God can and does this all the time. The question is, how do you know it's God talking and not your own flesh? That's where the canon can come in handy. With the canon, you can say, this impression doesn't sound like Jesus. Without the canon, any impression can be placed on God as long as you want it badly enough. How could you tell a crusader, for example, that he was doing the wrong thing? It felt like God's calling to him. You can say, well, that doesn't sound like the Jesus I know, but it sounds like the Jesus he knows. <laughs> what can arbitrate between you? That's right, the canon. The whole idea of saying, well, this is the canon of scripture, it implies that God is finished communicating. And anything else you would ever want to know is found in the in the in in that Bible. Um and yeah, that opens up a whole nother can of worms as well, I, I know. Outlandish. Having a canon means you have a selection of books that are authoritative on the matters they're seeking to touch on. Does that mean they seek to touch on every possible question that one could think of? This is such an outrageous misrepresentation of what the canon is and what it's supposed to do that I'm almost dumbfounded by it. I, I, who are these guys talking to? Who are the Christians, the conservative Christians or whatever that they grew up with? I mean, I, I mean, they must have sort of been around this this 
such an extreme patch of fundamentalism that you know the isolated from from you know the, the, the greater world and the, and the larger church I, I just don't understand where this is coming from apostolic authority was never a criteria until later the reason that they would use that as part of the canon to say oh did an apostle prove it is because they were trying to exclude stuff absolutely they were they were trying to exclude accounts of Jesus's life from the canon that have no basis in historical fact. Next clip. And some of them contain different perspectives, obviously depending on who was who was like speaking these things. So, for example, here are two groups. Well, I would say here one group in particular that suffers to this very day because of the canon that created the Bible. I would say is women. Women have been silenced specifically because of this canon. Let me kind of just touch on this for example. Most people have never heard of Mary, Mary of Magdalena. If we have heard about her, we've heard about her in a very obscure, it's just kind of confused with a few other Marys that kind of spring, they, they kind of spring up in the four gospels, the four out of the 200 that circulated in that time period. Or, so, or really quick, not to cut you off, but, or she gets conflated with um, a prostitute. Totally, uh, which is totally bunk. Which is totally it's been totally that that is a total misnomer. Like it was right. started by a pope, Pope Gregory, right? You know, fifth, fourth, fifth century. But like, anyway, like she she was considered by the by many people in the early church not just she not just a, a, one of the closest disciples of Jesus, but she was considered an apostle to the apostles. Actually, considered by many to be uh, to, to be. Um, the leader of the early church in that way, obviously not in the way, not through an office or the way that it's been constructed, but through through influence, because she was the closest disciple of Jesus. She did not go away after the resurrection. She had a vibrant ministry. She went to Egypt. She taught. Uh, there was entire communities that got established there, and she she presented a an aspect of the way of Jesus, a teaching of the way, like her interaction and relationship with Jesus was unlike any of the other disciples. So obviously what she's going, her understanding of love, her understanding of the way is going to be very nuanced. And it's, it's very, she had, she had something very important to say, and it traveled not only from Egypt, it went, my understanding is it went into Europe, into France, uh, Southern France, where entire communities were established. In defense of Gregory, <laughs> I think the misunderstanding of Mary Magdalene as a prostitute is based on conflating her with Mary of Bethany, who anoints Jesus' feet in the Gospel of John, and she was in turn conflated with the unnamed sinful woman who anointed Jesus' feet in Luke. I don't think this was a clear act of misogyny on the part of the early church. In fact, Irenaeus, who wrote fervently against the Gnostics and against heresies, he identified another Mary, Jesus' mother Mary, as a second Eve who brings about salvation vicariously through her willingness to give birth to the Messiah. The idea stated here uh, that she started a movement uh, in Egypt uh, may in fact be a similar conflation. I wasn't aware of this tradition, and in my research I could only find references to another Mary, St. Mary of Egypt, who is a repentant prostitute and was conflated with the story of Mary Magdalene in medieval tradition. Is the fact that our self-proclaimed heretic conflated Mary Magdalene with another prostitute evidence of his misogyny and desire to silence women? Of course not, it's an honest mistake. And unlike him, I can be charitable enough to assume a mistake on his part instead of leveling charges of some malevolent anti-woman conspiracy. Uh, which is not to say that there hasn't been sexism throughout church history or throughout the world's history. But, you know, in this case, I think it ended up being bogus. 
Oh, and that title, Apostle to the Apostles, it comes from medieval Catholicism, not some early church tradition outside of proto-Orthodoxy. It wasn't just about silencing women. Uh, It did do that. But it was essentially about control. Um, And it was essentially about, you know, the church silencing their critics and silencing the voices that they didn't want uh, to be given, you know, uh, any kind of prominence or or, uh, authority. Like, don't listen to those guys, right? They're Gnostics. They're heretics. They're whatever. Once again, the canon was recognized organically over time by churches throughout the world. It wasn't some kind of organized conspiracy. There was a keen interest to define Christianity so that people who, for example, denied the resurrection and thought the body was evil couldn't try to legitimize their anti-human and anti-gospel views by attaching the name of Christian to them. I think it's important to have some minimal threshold to meet in order to qualify a belief system as compatible with Christianity. From what I can tell, these guys think the Sermon on the Mount is a good threshold and that those who contradict it aren't really following Christ. Are they trying to seek control over the church and silence their critics? No, they're just trying to define what Christianity is and isn't on the basis of who Christ is and what he taught. So did the early church. Another thing, he seems to be speaking very positively in the Gnostic writings uh, and uh, talking about how the traditional uh, uh, canon has been so uh, you know, negative on, on silencing women. But uh, Gospel of Thomas saying 114, Simon Peter said to them, Mary should leave us for females are not worthy of life. Jesus said, see, I am going to attract her to make her male so that she too might become a living spirit that resembles you males. For every female that makes itself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that may not be sexist because honestly it makes no sense, but it sounds like it very well might be. Um, anyway, just wanted to, just as a point of reference here. But, you know, what I wanted to say was like, uh, I was reading this, uh, an amazing book. I think I mentioned this before too. It's a, it's a brand new translation of the New Testament by David Bentley Hart. A phenomenal book. And in the back, he has a section on uh, the authorship of uh of the epistles and and so he here i want to do what he says about these disputed letters of paul so there's a handful of them that we that scholars would agree uh you know these were written by paul so galatians and romans and um you know philemon like so these are not in dispute totally believe yes this was written by paul uh but there's some of them uh like second thessalonians and ephesians and as I mentioned, uh, the pastoral epistles, that there's really good reasons to think that they were written later or, or, and not written by Paul. Uh, and I just want to read what he says about this real quick. He says, um, let's see, he says, of the Pauline letters that most scholars believe were not written by Paul himself, Second uh, Thessalonians and Ephesians and Colossians, um, they do boast substantial coteries of scholars as a minority report who do accept Pauline authorship. Again, those are in the minority. He says, but while Second Thessalonians echoes Paul's style somewhat, it seems to also be consciously structured upon the genuine First Thessalonians in many respects. In other words, somebody took First Thessalonians and just used it as a template to copy the structure, um, which again, if you were writing a letter for real, you wouldn't do that. Uh, and then back to what he says. He says, also, it seems to be a late text written in response to realities that arose after Paul's time, in particular, uh, the unexpectedly long delay of Christ's return. What is more significant still, it contains eschatological claims of striking exactitude that are not found, not only not found anywhere else in the Pauline corpus, but that seem almost impossible to reconcile with the eschatological language and motifs of the indubitable letters. So in other words, 
um, one or two things has got to be going on here. Uh, if you want to say uh, that Second Thessalonians was written by Paul, well, then you have to relax your grip a little bit on the inspiration of Scripture, because then you need to leave room for the fact, again, if you're accepting that Second Thessalonians was genuinely written by Paul, then what you're saying is that Paul had certain ideas about the return of Christ at the beginning of his writings, and later on changed his mind about that and wrote something that contradicted that or added to that. Now, uh, I'm okay with that. I think that, that, that that's possible and probably happens all the time. That because they're human beings, we have ideas uh, when we're younger, and the more we learn and study and grow, those ideas change and mature over time. I'm okay with that. Uh, Keith claims that you know there are letters that aren't in dispute. Uh, the Pauline letters not in dispute by critical scholars. In point of fact, all of the letters of Paul are disputed by radical skeptics, like uh, my friend, if I may call him that, uh, Dr. Robert Price. Uh, none of them are disputed by conservative scholars, <laughs> and a few of them are disputed by the majority of critical scholars. Interestingly, there's more early church support for Second Thessalonians than First, and even Marcion included it in his canon. Uh, as for the differences in eschatology, we're not really dealing with a qualitative difference here. This is kind of one of those areas where a difference in emphasis gets blown up into some kind of a contradiction, a seeming contradiction. So in First Thessalonians, uh, we read uh, you know, chapter 1, verse 10, God will deliver them from the wrath to come. Uh, they will be Paul's joy and crown at Christ's coming, 2.19. And Paul prays that God will strengthen their hearts so that they'll be blameless when Jesus returns, uh, 3.13 and 5.23. There's also a section dealing with the order of events on that great day in chapter 4. Paul explains that we believe, this is quote, uh, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. One could argue that the we language uh, suggests that Paul definitively believed that some of those in the church that day would not see death before Christ returned. It's a possibility uh, that, that that's what he's saying, but, but he kind of seems to hedge his bets uh, by, by qualifying that we with a who are still alive, which suggests that he honestly doesn't know how many of them, if any, will be alive on that day. Uh, you know, that, that we doesn't necessarily mean me and the members of the Thessalonian church. It could be, you know, uh, those who are still alive, you know, which at that time included the recipients of the letter and himself. Those who are still alive is a category that at that time uh, included them, so he could say we. Now, now, what about Second Thessalonians? In chapter 1, we read that God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled, and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. End quote. Pretty similar language to the first epistle. But then we move into some interesting differences. For example, chapter 2, we read, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. End quote. What's the issue here? Is it that Jesus is taking too long? 
know the issues that people are saying maybe he's already come. Paul's clearing that up. No, he hasn't come back yet. <laughs> if anyone tells you that, don't believe it. In fact, here are a few signs you can look for that have to happen first. And so he goes and describes this order of events. He does the same thing in First Thessalonians. Uh, you know, describes different events, not incompatible events, but still. Now it's, a, now it's possible that the church had invented uh, some secret second coming because the first hadn't happened yet, like, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses did. But that's reading an idea into the text that isn't necessary to understand what Paul is saying. You know, you don't have to think that Second Thessalonians is, is meant to address this concern because it never explicitly says it does, and you don't have to think that it does to understand what he's saying. Now, leaving that rationalization aside, there's actually nothing in Second Thessalonians that requires a change in Paul's theology, because it doesn't contradict anything he said in First Thessalonians. The message of both is that Jesus will return to judge the world. The primary difference is that Second Thessalonians clarifies that with a, you know, no, that hasn't happened yet. If Jesus came back to judge the world, I think you would have noticed that. So, so at the end of the day, a great deal of the arguments against Pauline authorship happen at the presuppositional level. Arguments against his authorship are artificially weighted to make them appear stronger than they are, and they're believed in more strongly than is actually warranted. These linchpins of our faith that are not in the cross of Christ, anything other than that, whether whether it be our hermeneutics, whether it be what we define as canon, whatever that is, if 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 that is something other than Christ, once one of those falls, our faith can just crumble. And there is a danger to yes. assuming all of these things that have to happen in order to for us to have any sort of faith. And that's what we see, uh, Keith. When you're when you're doing these posts on Facebook, it's like. The, the assumption for some people is, well, if if he says um, he starts a letter, Paul, a, a servant of the blah, 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 and, and it's not really Paul, well, then he's a liar. And, and then it's like it's like you can already see someone's <laughs> faith unraveling yeah. and they're and they don't believe that. But, but that's why they're attaching it to that, because they can see it. Well, if that's not true, burn the book, you know, gone uh, off goes Jesus, off goes God. And now I'm an atheist. I mean, it's like that's how uh, that these uh, if something other than the cross of Christ is the linchpin, we are doomed from That's the start. Right. Absolutely. I've said that many times and, I, and I've seen it as well. Like if you make anything else, the center of your faith other than Christ, then, then yeah, if you're if the center of your faith is, uh, is the Bible. And when people start to say, well, this book doesn't belong and Paul didn't maybe write that. And maybe this part here is incorrect. Oh my gosh, the whole thing collapses. And now the next thing you know, you're an atheist. If you have a fundamentalist view of scripture, you have a precarious faith that can easily be shaken. No doubt about it. But if you want to talk about the cross of Christ as the center, even as you undermine the basis for how we can know about it, that's just as much a slippery slope to atheism. Maybe you'll end up a less bitter atheist than the former fundamentalist, but neither one of you had a strong basis for believing what you do, and that's the problem. Once you realize that, it collapses. <sighs> Anyway, I hope this was helpful to the listeners. I, I think it's important to go over these facts carefully uh, and also to offer a meaningful defense uh, for, you know, orthodoxy in the face of unfair caricatures, which I think there were some here. Uh, and that's what I sought to do. So if I was unfair or uncharitable to the folks at uh, Heretic Happy Hour, please forgive me, guys. Uh, and you're also uh, always welcome to dialogue with me, either privately or publicly. Um, if, if you'd like to come on here, we can uh, we can maybe change the title from Cantus Firmus to uh, Overjoyed Orthodox E Hour, maybe apostrophe O U R, maybe I don't know. Anyway, thank you so much, everybody, for listening. God bless.
Hey, real quick, I wanted to uh, give a shout out to those who support the Cantus Firmus Patreon, um, particularly at the $50 uh, Phoebe tier, and that includes getting a shout out on the uh, <laughs> Cantus Firmus uh, Patreon exclusive podcast as well as this public one. Uh, and those would be uh, Kelly Smith and Peter Mangle. Thank you guys so much. Uh, for anybody who wants to learn more about uh, what I'm doing here, you can visit cantusfirmus.com. That's cantus-firmus.com. Uh, or check out patreon.com slash cantusfirmus without the dash. Thanks.